Welcome to the fourth and the final talk from the series alone from the book of Job. A friend of mine was asking me this week, and I should preface this by saying I've taught through the book of Job four or five times, and a friend of mine asked me, do you feel that you understand the book? And I told him, no, honestly, I, I feel like I've understood pieces of it, but I still believe there's a certain mystery to suffering. Your situation will be different from mine, and ours will be different from the person sitting next to you. So although we may understand some things and take some things with us from this book, there's still going to be an aspect in which we're going to have to search and seek God. There's a reason why we've chosen the title alone for this particular study through the book of Job, because I feel like when your life turns dark, that's where it puts you. It puts you, and I don't know if this is a word or not, but it puts you in a certain aloneness. For instance, when you're going through a crisis or going through a difficult time, there's a side of it that's known for public consumption. If you're a person that's well-known by a lot of people, when you go through a difficult time, everybody knows something about what you're going through. They'll say, he's going through a rough time, or she's sick right now, or ill right now. And so there's something that everybody knows, and you can still feel alone in a crowd. And then there's a smaller group of people that are your closer friends, and they know more about it than the public crowd knows. And then you probably have a really tight inner circle. If you're married, maybe it's your husband or wife, or your kids, or your closest friends. But here is the thing that I've discovered. When your life turns dark, no matter how many people love you, no matter how many people are very close to you, there's still a room, room that you go into all by yourself. There, there are aspects of your, of your crisis that you don't share with anybody. And it could be just because, and this is what I've discovered, I don't know if you've discovered this, it could just be that um, it's hard to articulate. I've had a hard time putting my feelings into words. And I've told you before, I think the most profound prayer sometimes is just the prayer that says, God, you know. I can't put it into words, but you see everything. You know my heart. You know how I feel. And I just think that's sometimes the deepest prayer. God, you know, or you see. And when you're in that sense of aloneness, feeling things that perhaps you can't articulate, or maybe it's you don't want to add to anybody else's burden, the problems that you feel, the weight of what you feel is so heavy, like, well, I don't want to bring anybody else down. Or it could be the fears that are screaming at you, are so terrifying that you don't want to share them with anybody else. And I think that's where Job was. And if you've ever been there, and if, and if you haven't been there, I'm not trying to rain on your beautiful day today, but you're going to be there sometime, and all of us are going to be there sometime again. All of us are going to go through seasons of our life when our lives turn dark, and we're going to feel all alone. Now, let me just tell you what we're going to want at that point, because as we go into this last talk on Job, Job has wanted this from day one. Well, what we want is we want to understand we want to know why. God has just wired us as human beings that if we're suffering, we want that suffering to have an equal purpose. If we're suffering greatly, we want it to be a great purpose. And so when we don't find that purpose and there seems to be no sense to it, then we ask God, or if we're not God followers, we may ask professionals we may ask our friends to try to help us make sense because here's the thing. And this is one reason why I would really have a hard time being an atheist. It's very hard to suffer, but when you're suffering for no purpose at all, it's just too much to bear. And so Job is a God follower enough to know that there has to be some purpose. But in his season of aloneness, it's as if he can't find God. And that's the most problematic aspect of this. I mean, we've already talked about it, and we'll talk about it again, how his friends came to comfort him and wound up verbally abusing him. We saw how his wife, having gone through the crisis with Job, gives up and encourages Job to commit suicide. 
And then the people that used to have so much respect for Job look at his poor, pathetic, bankrupt condition, and they don't want to have anything to do with him. And so Job is aware of the fact that everybody in his material world has turned against him, but the biggest aspect of this is he can't find God. I don't know why we go through seasons like that. I've shared this with you before in two or three series, but three years ago, I went through a difficult time of exhaustion, and I remember saying to Mary Alice, I would give 10 years of my life to have a 10-minute conversation with Jesus where he could talk back to me. And I'm glad he didn't take me up on that because I need those 10 years. <laughs> but you understand how I felt. I mean, have you noticed, I don't know if you noticed or not, have you noticed that when you pray, the conversation does tend to be, at least from an audible perspective, it tends to be rather one-sided? And I know God is listening to my prayer, but I needed an answer. And I was saying, I would give 10 years of my life just to have a conversation with God where I could ask him a question and he would respond back to me. At the point where we find Job at the end of this book, I think he would have given all the rest of his life just to have a conversation with God where he could ask God, God, explain to me what is going on. But right out of the box, could I just push back against our thinking a little bit? We want to understand. We want to know why. But let me ask you a question. How great an advantage would it be if we knew why? I mean, suppose Job goes to God and Job is saying to God, God, I don't understand why all this is happening to me. And God said, well, okay, Job, I'll explain to you. Another day the angels were coming before me and Satan came by and, and, I, and I knew he was going to accuse everybody. So I brought your name up and he said, oh, he only serves you because you put a hedge around him and take it down and he'll curse you. So I allowed him to take it down and you didn't curse me. And then he came back and he said, well, you know, skin for skin, if you let me make him sick, then he'll, he'll, he'll curse you. And, and so Job, that's, that's what's behind it all. Let me ask you a question. Would that have helped Job a great deal if he had to go back into his ash pile and scrape his sores? I mean, Job could say, well, at least I know. See, the thing of it is, one of the reasons why we have a hard time understanding the book of Job, and I shared this with you in week one, is we want Job to answer the questions we have from when we're going through suffering, and God tends to answer the questions that we need to have answered instead of those that we want answered. When I was a kid, my, my church and my dad and teachers taught me a verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says, A peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard or garrison your hearts and minds. And that's a very important verse because when you go through a crisis, it's your heart and your mind that's most vulnerable. Your heart is your emotions. Your mind is your thinking. And how many of you have discovered that in a crisis you don't think right? Your thinking gets skewed. And so the Bible is telling us that there is something that will guard our emotions and our thinking. But here's the thing. It says the peace that surpasses understanding. Now, when I was a kid, I would listen to ministers talk about this. And basically, they would say something like this. they say, have you ever noticed that some people, when they go through a crisis, they just have a peace about them, and it just is beyond figuring out? I mean, it's like they have this peace, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem reasonable that they would have peace. And so they would take that as if that's the meaning of that verse, the peace that passes understanding. But that's not what that verse means at all. It's, it, its true meaning is that the peace of God is better than the ability to understand what's going on. That's what we need. We need God to come and give us peace in those moments of crisis. Well, as you know the book of Job, and we've studied it now for three weeks, time has passed and Job has been alone in several ways. In week one, we said Job was alone. He was singled out. Crisis came to him. And whenever our world falls apart, we can feel like, the only person that's suffering at that moment. 
And then we saw that Job had an aloneness in being abandoned by the people. We've already talked about that. And then last week, we didn't have services on Sunday because of the snow, but last week, at least on Saturday night, and this is on the internet if you didn't get to catch it, we talked about Job being alone and misunderstood by the people who were supposed to come and comfort him. This morning, we're going to talk about Job being alone and invited in to the presence of God. For, the, for, the, for just a few brief moments, God is going to bring Job in and let Job have what he's craved more than anything else, which is some time with God to gain perspective on, the, on, on his crisis. But at first, it's going to be tense because Job has done something wrong. You know, let me just go back to, with, for just a moment and give you the, the schematic for the book of Job. If you have a Bible in your lap or some of you have an electronic device with you, if you have the book of Job before you, Job has 42 chapters. The first two chapters of the book are God telling us how Job's life fell apart. The next 35 chapters of the book are dedicated to Job going back and forth with his friends. Job saying he's innocent and they're telling him he's guilty. And then there are about four chapters where God is like putting Job on trial. And then at the end, in chapter 42, God doubles everything that Job lost. So I want to just ta tackle those four chapters today where God puts Job on trial. And, and honestly, I don't know how you feel about this, but knowing how good a man Job was, God's already said he's the best man in the world. I want to know why is God putting Job on trial? And as a kid, I would listen to ministers preach and they would talk about Job doing something wrong. And I would think, wow, what did he do? First and foremost, you need to know Job didn't do anything wrong to suffer. Job's suffering had absolutely nothing to do with whatever this is that he did wrong. His suffering, we know about that in chapters 1 and 2. Satan came and said, take the fence down and he'll curse you. So we understand that's a thing between God and Satan. So he didn't suffer because he did anything wrong. So I would listen to ministers preach when I was a kid, and I was trying to sort this out in my own mind. Well, what did, what did, what did Job do? Because he seemed like such a fine person, and, and he goes through all this grief. And, and I, I had ministers preach, and they would say, well, well, Job sinned because he asked God why. Well, who in their right mind wouldn't ask God why? I mean, you're sailing right along, and everything's going fantastic, and in one day, you're bankrupt, and all 10 of your kids get killed in a tornado, and then a few days later, you get sick, and you can't get well, and your whole life fall, falls apart with no apparent reason. I mean, honestly, who in their right mind wouldn't ask God why? And God doesn't reproach Job for asking why, and he doesn't reproach you for asking why. God has given you reason. God's given you an intellect. God's given you a sense of justice and fair play. And so consequently, I think all of us have that within us, and I've never seen God get upset with anybody for asking why. Well, I heard other preachers say, well, Job complained about what happened. Well, who wouldn't complain about what happened? I mean, it's not like Job would say, oh, I'm just having a great day out here in the ash pile. You know, I mean, it's like you're not going to see a person covered with lesions and, and tumors with a smiley face on. So I don't think that was it, and the Bible doesn't say that's why Job got in trouble. And there's some people who say that Job got in trouble because he was honest about his feelings, but I know that's not it because God can always do business with honest people. I mean, God wants you to be honest with him. And then there are those who say, well, Job got into trouble because he protested his innocence, but he was innocent. No. Do you realize I never really figured out what Job did wrong until I was doing a series on Job here six years ago called Silence. And, and it was the first time that I'd ever just read through the entire book of Job nonstop. And in reading through the book, I began to catch what Job did wrong. 
See, I, I told this to you last week, and in case you missed the message last week, Job had three or four, I guess, friends who came by to see him. And they started off trying to comfort him, but the friends had the belief that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. And so they see this poor, pathetic Job, and they see him lose all his wealth and all his kids and being in this awful physical shape, and they're thinking, this boy must have done something really bad. And so they want to help Job. You ever have friends who want to help you? And you're like saying, please don't help me anymore. I can't take any more of your help. <laughs> so they, they, they said, Job, no, listen, here, here's the thing. There's no sense in hiding this anymore. Look at the mess you're in. You did something really bad. Why don't you just share it with us? Emote with us. Tell us what you did wrong, and you will be better. God will bring you out of this. And Job is saying, but I didn't do anything wrong. Well, that makes him mad. And they're saying, you think we're a bunch of fools? I mean, look, we see which, which, you must have really, and so they just turn up the volume, and so Job turns up the volume, no, I'm innocent, and then it goes into a shouting match, and they start verbally abusing Job, if you heard the message last week, you know that. Now, guys, <laughs> the problem is, and, and, and if, you did, if you missed the message last week, let me just say this, when you're going through a crisis, you have to be careful who you let into your life. Just because you're a Christian, you don't have to let everybody into your crisis. There are some people not to let in. Somebody who hadn't bought a ticket to your crisis, somebody with no skin in the game, somebody who, who's self-righteous and thinks they know all the answers, you don't want those people in your crisis because here's the thing. They can pull you across the line. They can lure you into doing things that really are harmful. And that's what happened to Job. See, I think if Job had called these guys liars, bums, and kicked them out of his house, I don't think there would have been any problem. Maybe that's not the best solution, but he'd have been, God would have never you know, criticized him for that. But they lured him into doing the one thing he couldn't do. By the way, if you like to study the Bible, there's another person in the Bible who had the same thing happen to him. You remember Moses? God's job for Moses was to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the place where God wanted them to be, Canaan. And when we watch the old movies about Moses, it looks like he's leading about a thousand people. I need to let you in on this. Moses was leading between two and a half and three and a half million people in the desert with no McDonald's, no food courts, nothing. <laughs> and, they, and they were not strong people. And Moses was on God's agenda. He didn't ask for the job, but Lord knows he didn't want to do this. But they were just complaining all the time. No, 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 no. We hate you, Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. And, and yet the people wouldn't have the faith to do what God wanted them to do, so they had to wander 38 extra years to let all the old people who didn't want to go forward die off. And Moses was having to deal with that. And Dean and Daddy heard him complain about this and complain about that. And finally they got to a place where there was no water. And already God had given them water in the desert. But instead of trusting God, the people just started jumping on Moses and calling him everything in the books. And Moses was angry, but he went to pray. And God said, Moses, look at the rock over there. Speak to the rock and water will come out. Now, here's what you need to know. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Bible tells us that rock was Christ. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that Jesus was that rock. It was that that rock represented Christ. But Moses was angry because the people had been, you know, criticizing him. And instead of speaking to the rock like he was supposed to, he took his rod and he said, must I get water for you rebels? And he hit the rock with it. Now, if you've ever read this in the Bible, what happened to Moses? I mean, God said, Moses, you didn't respect me in front of the people. And because you didn't, you're not going to get to go into the promised land, right? 
Now, here's the thing. See, Moses had every reason to be angry at these people who are criticizing him. And, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I've long thought if Moses had picked up that rod and just cold cocked the loudest critic there, he'd have gone into the promised land. God could have forgiven him for that. But his, his detractors lured him into doing the one thing he could not afford to do, which was to attack God. And that's what happened to Job. Because in his protest of innocence, instead of turning his anger on his friends, he begins to turn his anger on God, and he begins to basically toy with the idea of taking God to court. And this is what I discovered when I read through the book. And so I want to do something. I want to, so that you won't, I hope you will read through the book so that you won't have to do it right now. I want to take you through an evolution of thought as Job begins to toy with this idea of how cool it would be to take God to court. Would you just read and listen? Let your ear be tuned for the subtle changes in Job's comments as he goes along here. Job says in Job 9 verse 14, Who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I'd have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him and he responded, I'm not sure he'd listen to me. If it's a question of strength, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who dares summon him to court? Though I'm innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Though I'm blameless... It would prove me wicked. A few verses later, though, he says, God is not immortal like me, so I can't argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Job 10, I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge you're bringing against me. Job 10, 7. Although you know I'm not guilty, no one can rescue me from your hands. Job 13, as for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. Job 13, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. Job 23, if I only knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I would lay out my case. I would present my arguments. Job 31, if only someone would listen to me, look, I'll sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown, for I would tell him exactly what I've done. I would come before him like a prince. Oh, did you catch all that? I mean, Job is starting, and, and, and I don't blame Job, but I just want you to understand what went wrong. Job is saying, well, I couldn't go to court with God. You know, he's so great, and I just open my mouth, and I blow the whole case. Oh, I can't. It just doesn't do any good to think about it. Oh, but you know what I would like to do? I'd like to go to binding arbitration. If I go to binding arbitration, there's an arbitrator there. Maybe the arbitrator can make God stop beating me. You know what? The more I think about it, I would like to take God to court. I can't. I don't know where to find him, but I'd like to do it. You know what? I'm going to take him to court. In fact, not only am I going to take him to court, when I go into his court, I'm going to lay out my charges, and I'm going to strut in there like a prince and say, God, how dare you let this happen to me? Job, in the great court of the universe, has lodged an official complaint against God for mismanaging the universe, and he's demanded that God meet him in court. And basically, Job has said, look, I'm not afraid about this. This is going to be up and open and shut case. This is one occasion where God is wrong and I'm right. Have you ever been there? Now, you don't have to nod your head at me because we're a very sanctimonious group, right? No, no, no. I've been there. 
How can God be right? I mean, surely I'm right. I've actually had people ask me questions like this. Well, how can, if there's a loving God, how can there be a hell? Basically, that's tantamount to saying my sense of justice is higher than God's sense of justice. God's justice, God can't be greater than me in justice if there is a hell. It's an official complaint against God for mismanaging the universe. And so basically, after all this, God just says, see you in court, counselor. And that's why you have these four chapters in the book of Job. And basically, you, have, you need to understand what God is saying to Job is, Job, I have heard you lay out your case for 35 chapters. I am well acquainted with your case. And so you don't have to put on your case. I've been, I've been listening and watching. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to go right into the defense case. And so he puts Job on the stand and says, Job, I have some questions for you. You have charged me with mismanaging the universe. So I would like for you to answer the following questions since you are superior to me. Here is the first one. I need to get the right page, okay? Here's the first one. Where were you when I created the earth? Well, I'd have just given up right there. I don't know when God created the earth. I don't know how he created it. I just, I don't know where I was. I meter of my memory started running in August 1956. Where were you when I created the earth? Who decided its size? Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? Where, when I was directing the morning star singing in chorus, who took charge of the oceans? Did you ever produce a morning job? Or tell the dawn to get up and go to work? Have we checked out the bottom of the ocean? Can you affect the constellations? Can you get the attention of the clouds and make it rain for you? Can you get control of the lightning bolts and make them report for your orders? Are you the one who taught the lioness to stalk her prey while her cubs wait hungry in their dens? Are you the one who determined the gestational orders of the animals? Are you the one who taught the hawk to soar effortlessly on the updrafts? Did you teach the eagle to build nests in the cliffs? Did you give her the eyesight to spot her prey from long distances? And at this moment, God interrupts his questions and looks at Job on the stand and says, now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? Another translation, God says to Job, you're my critic, but do you have the answers? That's a good thing for us to toy with today. Sometimes we criticize God for the way he does things, but do we have the answers? Job at this moment wants to settle out of court. Job answered, I should have never opened my mouth. I've talked way too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. So you would think, okay, God will let him off the hook because Job has said, I want to settle right now. But God's not through asking questions. In fact, God's just getting started. He said, do you presume to tell me what I'm doing wrong? Are you trying to make me a sinner so that you can be a saint? Show your stuff. Target the arrogant and flatten them. Stop the wicked in their tracks and make mincemeat of them. God says to Job, I'll gladly hand things over to you if you can do these things. And then I'm not going to go into it, but actually for a couple of chapters, God just shifts his questioning and begins to ask Job if Job can handle some of the animals God has created. Basically, he's saying, how do you feel about just making the crocodile into a house pet or a rhinoceros. I'm basically saying, look, Job, you can't even handle the animals I've made. How do you bring me into court? Let me ask you a question. Is God hateful to press a suffering man like this? You know, in our sort of sappy 21st century replacing good with nice kind of thinking, it could be that some will say, well, I think God is really kind of hateful to poor Job there in the ash pile and ask Job those hard questions. And almost God sounds like a bully. Is that true? 
thousand times no. In the mess Job's in, the last thing he needs is a God shrunk down to his size. See, when we get mad at God, that's what we really are trying to do. We're trying to shrink God down to our size so that we can go one-on-one with God. And in the mess Job is in, I mean, let me ask you the question. What happens if Job wins the case? What if all of a sudden he has pulled God down to his level and God says, okay, I messed up this time and God is right down there with Job. I mean, Job is in such a horrible place. All he's going to be able to do is go back to his ash pile, scrape his sores and say, well, I guess I beat God that time. See, that's the thing. When we think God is wrong, when when we accuse God of mismanaging the world, where are we going to go with that? Many of us read the biography of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. And if you read the biography or if you read synopses of it, you know that Steve Jobs lost his faith. If he ever had any faith in God, he lost it when he was a young teenager because he took a picture in a magazine to his pastor of a starving child in Africa. And he said, if there can be a God, how can he let this happen? And he was displeased with the answer, so he quit believing in God. I would have always liked to approach Steve and said, well, did your agnosticism solve the problem of the child starving in Africa? Did that make it better? And in fact, when he was dying, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and he's so I'm thinking more about the possibility of God, but he said, I don't, sometimes I think there is a God, and maybe that's just because I want to think there's an afterlife, but he said, sometimes I think it's just like an on and off switch, it's off, and then, you know, it's click, and then it's off, and he said, that's why I always hated to put on and off switches on Apple devices. But you see my point, I'm just saying, you can, you can accuse God of not doing things right, but is your turning your back on God going to make the situation any better? What I'd like for us to hear today is that Job didn't need a God who would retreat back into sappy sympathy. He needed a God to be God. And so that's exactly who showed up. God showed up in his majesty. God showed up in his greatness and summoned Job to recognize that he was great. Why? Because Job was in such a mess, he needed a great God to get him out of the problem he was in. And so Job answered God in chapter 42, and I've told you this is the end of the book. He said, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything, nothing, and no one can upset your plans. You asked me, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never again live on crust of hearsay and crumbs of rumor. Job said, I know who you are now. And a short time later, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord, look at this, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. The cattle, God made it twice as much. The wealth, twice as much. And then verse verse 13 of chapter 42, he also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. Now, ladies, you're going to love this because in in the old covenant, it did tend to be a male-dominated culture. I want you to see the equality that Job believed in way back before, really, we even began to measure things like this. Notice that the sons are not named, but the daughters are. 
He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Happen. In all the land, there, was no woman, there were no women as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. That's really cool because usually girls didn't get in the will, but Job made an inequality among his kids. I like that. I don't know. It doesn't really fit the message, but I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> and I thought this was interesting too. You know what his daughter's names meant? I promise you, I'm not kidding. His first daughter's name means dove. The second one means uh, cinnamon. And the third one, and I'm not making this up, means box of eye makeup. <laughs> now, I don't know. I'm just pulling this out of the Hebrew. But what I can extract from that is that Job's daughters were hotties. That's all I can pick up from that. <laughs> all right, let's close this up. If the book of Job teaches us anything... It is that it's the nature of God to redeem. It's not the nature of God to keep us from getting into messes. It's not the nature of God to prevent us from going into suffering. But it is the nature of God to redeem. Now, if that is too much of a stained glass word for you, let me make it practical. Uh, to redeem means, well, literally it means to buy back what's been lost. But to redeem means to make what's wrong right. It's to step into a crisis and fix it. It is the nature of our God to step into a crisis and fix it. And that is what you and I need to understand today. Because here's the thing. Some of us are in such a mess that we feel like this mess is beyond repair. But if you will invite God into your mess, you're inviting the person into your mess who can redeem the mess you're in. I have been in so many issues. I sat up in the balcony and just listened to that awesome song a few moments ago. And I thought about the mountains that God has taken me over and the valleys that God has brought me through and the storms that God has protected me from. Listen to me, please. There have been so many messes I've been in. And I thought, there's no way out of this. And here's what I've said. There's no way that anything good can come out of this. And yet I was in worship today, giving God worship and glory because he's brought me out of everyone. It is the nature of our God to step into our mess and make it right. Now, but here's the thing. We have to let, it do him, let him do it on his terms, in his time, in his way. Because God never fixes my messes the way I think he's going to. In fact, here's the weird thing about it. God will let me go deeper into a mess so that he can do more extraordinary things. Now, I understand, and I'm not a fool. There are certain aspects of our crises that are never going to be right. Job's first 10 children were in heaven, and he would have to wait till he got to heaven to see them. That's why God didn't give Job 20 children. He still had the first 10. But it is the nature of God to redeem. To redeem you from the mess you're in, but here is the biggest one. The reason why we call Christ our Redeemer is because he has redeemed us from the curse of our own sinfulness that would drag us to hell. I don't know that I, I don't know that you think in these terms, but theologians, theologians tend to look at the Bible this way. They, they look at it through what's called progressive revelation. And, and there's an element of truth to that. In other words, as you go from Genesis all the way through God, progressively reveals himself to us. And there is a sense that people way back in the Old Testament did not know God very well. 
The book of Job is very helpful to refute that because if you read the book of Job, there are times when Job sounds like things that we read in Ephesians or 2 Corinthians. I mean, it is amazing. Long before Abraham, long before there was a nation of Israel, long before there was an Old Testament, God had revealed himself. I don't know how he did it, but he revealed himself to people. And when you listen to what Job said, you realize Job knew a lot of the things that you and I know living in the New Testament age. I know this because the greatest verse in the book of Job occurs in the middle of Job's suffering. And many of us have quoted this verse, so we have it in our artwork. And I can tell you as a man who has preached God's word for over 40 years, this is one of the mountain peaks of the Bible. In the worst of his suffering, Job said, I know this. I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. Now, guys, I want to tell you, that is a fully formed theology right there. Job is saying, it looks like I'm going to die. And my flesh and my body looks like it's had it. And it's going to go back to the dust and it's going to decay. But I know this. I'm going to have another body someday. And I know there is a day when my Redeemer will stand on the earth. And I'm not coming back as a frog or a fish or a feather or a breeze. I'm coming back as Job. And I'm going to see my Redeemer with my eyes. I don't think I'm going to make it right now, but my Redeemer lives. And because he lives... I'm going to live again, and I'm going to see my Lord. And Job understood that our God redeems us, not just from our messes, but he redeems us from this broken life. See, here's the deal. Unless Jesus comes back first, all of us are going to, we're going to die. You know, the statistics on death are one out of every one dies. <laughs> I probably... I've probably conducted a thousand funerals, and I always come back to you know meet Mary Alice after I get through at the funeral, and she always asks me the same question: "How'd your funeral go?" And I think, well, that sounds kind of strange. <laughs> How'd your funeral go? I always tell her, "Well, I survived it." <laughs> <laughs> well, someday you're going to survive your funeral. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ hung on a cross, and the blood that came out of his body was a blood that paid for your sins. In fact, the Bible says, in him we have redemption. That's our word. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. So that means the person that's the real you, that's listening, that's alert, that's alive, that's cognitive, that loves, that cares, that part of you that is personality, if you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, that part of you is never going to die. Why do you think people who have near-death experiences talk about traveling down a long hallway and moving toward light because the real you doesn't die Christ has come into our broken world to fix it and he fixed it on a cross by the way we're starting a brand new series next week's biggest thing I've ever been part of not only that it's the biggest thing I could ever be part of because it's seven messages on Jesus having one-on-one -on -one appointments with people and changing their lives life put them there Jesus came to meet them their life was never the same again I can't wait to get started next week but have you ever invited Jesus into your life? God hasn't asked you to embrace a religion. He hasn't asked you to turn over a new leaf. He's asked you to put confidence in his son, Jesus. And if you will, he will step into your mess and he'll redeem it forever. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. These aren't magic words. And whether you're in the room with me or you're watching this on the internet 
or you're watching this archived message, you can join me in this prayer right now. And you may not understand everything about it. I'm just asking you to be open enough to say this to God. And not, not that these are magic words, it's the intention of your heart that matters. But if you would like to pray with me, I'll pray it slowly so you can own each phrase. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. My life is a mess. But I believe Jesus is the Redeemer. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I turn from my way. And I ask you to give me the power to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know you prayed that quickly, but if you prayed that prayer, would you do a huge favor for me? Would you go back to guest services? I have a packet for you. It's got a DVD and a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions, and I promise you, no hidden agenda. I just want you to have this, because you could say, Mark, I prayed, but I don't know what I did. I'm not really sure what I just got. This will help. So just go back to guest services. All you guys say is, I pray with Mark. They won't stalk you, hassle you. They just want to give you this, all right? Thanks for being here for Job next weekend. We start the appointment. See you soon.